hashtag gatekeeping. So that was what was on Twitter, uh, at least Monday evening. I don't know how long it's going to be trending, but hashtag gatekeeping came up and I was curious to see what that was about. And then I saw that friend of the show, Anthony Wendell, uh, made a comment about gatekeeping, about gatekeeping in pop culture and fandom. And man, I just rolled my eyes because gatekeeping in fandom and pop culture and geek culture, it drives me crazy. It's really something that I find to be detrimental to uh, just the expansion and the love of the genre. Why, why do people feel the need to do this? Oh, and to be clear, Anthony Wendell wasn't advocating any kind of gatekeeping. He was also expressing his disappointment in the gatekeeping that sometimes happens in pockets of fandom. Now look, I personally feel a great deal of pride in knowing so much, and I know I don't know it all, but knowing as much as I do about the classic monster movies that I love. I hold these in such high regard that I enjoy figuring out when they were made, who made them, the connections between this film and that film, and what was going on at the time, and which studio did this, and why didn't that actor appear, and why did they go in 3D, and you know, I just I love knowing these things. However, I don't think you have to know all this stuff to be a fan of these movies. And I don't see that in the Monster Kid radio community, which is great. But I just wanted to put out there on the off chance, on the very off chance that anybody listening to this show, if anybody out there has felt like they were made to feel like less of a fan because they don't know as much about a particular movie or they haven't seen that particular movie or whatever... I apologize. I, I hope that is not something that I've ever done to anybody out there. I've never really had anybody do that to me in the fandom, but I know that as somebody who sometimes gets kind of looked at as, uh, man, I'm trying real hard not to toot my own horn here, but I feel like people sometimes put me in a place of authority and I really don't have it. I'm not any better than any other fan out there. I just happen to have a platform that you guys and gals have helped me build over the years. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody else, a dear friend of the show. I'm not going to name her. I'm not going to call her out, but we were talking about how sometimes there's this tendency when it comes to these niche fandoms, say like um, Euro Whore, for example. If you don't know all this stuff about the particular director or the filmmaker, or don't agree with the consensus that's been put out there about a particular movie or the themes or what they mean, that sometimes there's a tendency to kind of write that person off. And I really hope that's not something that anybody ever gets out of Monster Kid Radio. No, nothing happened with MKR. No, nobody called me out. Nobody said that this is how I feel or whatever. Nobody, as far as I know, has been made to feel this way. But on the off chance you did, feel this way because of a comment that I made here on the show or somebody that I had come on the show, you know, made a comment or something along those lines. I apologize. And maybe this is just me trying to fill time on episode 510 of the podcast. I don't know if that's really where it's coming from or I just am really concerned because sometimes I feel like, especially in this particular subgenre, a subgenre of movies that aren't being made anymore. There's a finite amount of classic and not so classic monster movies. We have to continue to grow the fandom. And you can't do that if you are making people feel like they can't be part of the fandom. So, whether you just discovered classic monster movies, whether you just discovered 
Boris Karloff or the Universal Monster movies or the Hammer films or whatever, or if you've been with them your entire life. Welcome to episode 510 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and monster kids of all ages and all levels of experience are welcome here. The music that we've been playing underneath all of this is the song Unhappy End. It is from the Russian surf band Los Cosmos. It is a single that you can pick up at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. And yes, because it's Russian, Cosmos is spelled with a K. We'll be playing this song in its entirety at the end of the show. Big thanks to them for letting us play their music here on the show. If you want to pick up the single for yourself, you can pick up the digital track for one dollar what's coming up in this episode of the show well i'm getting my zombie on it's been a long time since i've talked about zombies proper on a podcast and i'm excited to get into the zombies of morotau this movie man what a treat it is something that i'd seen before but to have an opportunity to talk about it with friend of the show Tom Greganis, you know, it's just, it was a fun time. So I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. But before we get to that conversation, we've got our regular segments. We've got Kenny with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland and Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. Also, we're doing something new. We're adding something to the mix. Let me know if you like it, because if you do, we can get more installments sent over to Monster Kid Radio. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about this. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest adventure in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight's tale takes place near the beginning of this uncanny invasion in a story we call A Scientific Problem Join us now as we present another in a continuing series of Atomic Tales. Cube square law be damned. I was staring down the mandibles of a 15-foot-long ant and in no mood to argue about science. I drew my automatic and fired off a couple of shots as I ran. Naturally, that did about as much good as uncorking a pop gun at it. The ant crawled over the top of the dune, its gray-black form almost invisible under the star-filled Arizona sky. If not for the headlights of my car, which I'd left on when I parked on the side of the highway, I'd have never seen the thing coming. Last time I stopped to relieve myself in an out-of-the-way spot while on an investigation. Remembering a movie I'd seen as a kid, I aimed my next shots at the beast's antenna and managed to hit one of the vulnerable areas in between the joints. I'd say it was a lucky strike, but three years in the service and five in the Bureau had more to do with it than random chance. I may not be much of a scientist, but I do know how to shoot a gun. Disabling one antenna confused the beast, and it seemed to lose track of me for a moment. That gave me the precious time I needed to sprint for the car. The bug regained its senses and honed in once more, scenting me in the air or seeing me with its huge compound eyes. I don't know which, and I didn't really care. The point was, it was after me again, and, training or no, I was woefully unprepared to face an ant the size of a Studebaker. No flamethrowers, no bazookas, not even a Tommy gun in my trunk. 
How can an ant be as big as my sedan? Professor Tarragon explained it to me once. The size of these things has to do with adaptive mutation. No, giant bugs cannot be constructed the same way as your everyday pest. Their exoskeletons just don't scale up to support their weight, nor do their other systems. You could, however, easily fashion a replica of such a monster out of steel and other modern materials. Basically, that's what the bug's biology has done. Who knows what kind of stimulus would cause such a freakish and unlikely set of mutations? Well, Professor Tarragon probably does, but that's beside the point. The point is the giant insects are here, scattered throughout the U.S., and they're built like living tanks. I just didn't expect to find one while I was taking a whiz by the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, Arizona. Damn atomic testing. Obviously, we needed to expand the parameters of our investigation and call in the Marines. I reached my car with the bug a scant hundred yards behind. I rammed the Studebaker into gear. The transmission crunched and the tires squealed as I popped the clutch. I pounded the gas pedal all the way to the floor. The sedan shot forward, down the highway, across the shoulder, right at the giant bug. The ant kept coming, hurling straight from my onrushing vehicle. I felt like I was playing a nightmare version of chicken. They're not scared of anything, these bastards. I ran the ant with all the speed my six cylinders could muster. The front of the car folded up like tinfoil, but I cut the thing's legs out from under it like a star quarterback throwing a front-page tackle. Armored or no, the ant's legs were still its weak spot. The bug crumpled, spraying acrid-smelling vital fluids into the air. Half of the monster fell atop the sedan. The thing's head cracked open from the impact, but its carcass still crushed the Studebaker's passenger side roof almost to the top of the front bench seat. I'd like to think that I avoided being killed because of good aim and fast reflexes, but mostly it was sheer luck and solid construction by the automaker's South Bend assembly line. Thanks, Studebaker. They don't call this model champion for nothing. The ant's huge jaws kept snapping, looking for prey for a full five minutes after it died. Those were long, anxious moments, let me tell you. The car's passenger compartment had crumpled around me but left me intact. I could even open the driver's side door to get out if I'd wanted to. As it was, I thought of the better part of Valor to stay in the sedan and call for reinforcements. I had a hell of a time reaching the two-way radio, though. It was located on the passenger side. Took me at least 15 minutes to dig out the handset. Fortunately, the electronics survived the crash. One ant down, one problem licked. God only knew how many more out there waiting to plague me, the Bureau, and the rest of the world. For all I knew, there were more of them lurking in the desert hills, watching me at that very moment. That's what we in the Bureau call job security. So I sat in the remains of the car and waited for backup. I also waited to finish taking that whiz. At least, now, I had plenty of time to zip up. And I'm sure at this very moment, right this instant, some smart-ass scientist is writing up some paper telling me how everything I just went through is physically impossible according to the cube-square law and half a dozen other scientific principles I've never heard of. All I have to say to that wise guy is this. Take it up with Professor Tarragon. Or, better yet, take it up with the ants. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales, brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, A Sci-Ant-ific Problem, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and read by Christopher R. Mim. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. 
visit us at www.atomictales.com. Please support the films of Christopher R. Milne by visiting sainteuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at paysteve.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2020 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. The Crawling Hand. Someone please come in. Push the red. God, Steve, help me. Help me. Ah! Paul, what does it mean I'm stacked? Stacked? (laughs) (laughs) You'll experience the new dimension in motion picture thrills when you see The Crawling Hand. The Crawling Hand demands to live. Commands you to see it. A disembodied hand holds the key to a killer more deadly than the supernatural. The remains of an astronaut destroyed in space fights for life. A requiem for an astronaut. He's a killer. He doesn't come over here quietly and put that bottle down. I'll have to shoot him. But he's just a kid! It strikes deadly. Silently. It will not relent. The crawling hand must destroy in order to exist. It will strike you deadly. The crawling hand. It's a new height in fright. What have animals to do with this? The man's jugular vein was bitten, clean through. Never before such diabolic evil as the skull. I found in the morning that the skull had been removed. But who removed it? those who use its power. Invisible beings, spirits from a strange, evil world. The moving skull spreads its shrieking terror everywhere. Casting its hypnotic trance over all who fall under its hideous shadow. at its evil command. Never before such blood-curdling horror as the skull. I want to give each of you the opportunity to, to experience the sensation of hypnosis, to cross the dark, mysterious threshold of your own unconscious mind.
And now, if you dare, look into the hypnotic eye. The hypnotic eye. No one was safe against it. Eleven women. Attractive, some even beautiful. Each one of them mutilated herself in some crazy way. I mean, they can't all be accidents. Your body is growing stiff and rigid. Your flesh is turning to stone. You are turning to stone. The hypnotic eye. Terror loose in the city streets. Reaching from the plush nightclubs to the beat joints bongo beat. A strange animal magnetism that drives women to do things hidden deep within their subconscious. And bringing violence and mutilation and death to the innocent. What is more pleasant than a cool, refreshing shower? Get into the shower, Marshall. Get into the cool, cool shower. The terrible power of hypnosis used for satanic evil. A spell impossible to resist, ending in unspeakable torture. <laughs> command you to see the hypnotic eye. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty ultra heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Spies, snipers, subterranean super snails, Ultra Q's 24th episode has got all those, plus the object referenced in its title, the Statue of Goga. This installment of Ultra Q, which debuted June 12, 1966, gets off to a rollicking start, with the theft of the statue, the kidnapping of a little girl, and an audacious opening credits sequence in which a secret agent throws his car in reverse as a warehouse explodes in the background. At the center of the intrigue is a woman named Aileen who befriended the little girl on an airplane flight in order to abscond with the statue and deliver it to an evil collector named Iwakura. Daily News Editor-in-Chief Seki gets wind of the plot and sends Yuriko to investigate, along with Ipe and June. The smugglers don't realize that the statue harbors a deadly secret, Goga itself, a snail with a glowing shell which grows exponentially and is, in fact, a doomsday monster mentioned in ancient prophecy. Can Tokyo avoid being yet another civilization destroyed by Goga? 24 episodes in, one is still never quite sure what direction an Ultra-Q story is going to take. This homage to the spy genre makes for some moments of genuine suspense, though it tends to leave our trio of leads with relatively little to actually do until the very end. And while Goga's rampage is marred by some subpar special effects by today's standards, it's a creature whose eye beams can melt your face. And that has to count for something. 
The actor who played smuggling kingpin Iwakura was Tatsuo Matsushita, who enjoyed a long career as a character actor, appearing in such diverse films as Zatoichi the Outlaw, Take Aim at the Police Fan, and Toho Studios' Lake of Dracula. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Terror as the screen unleashes the greatest double, all-monster, earth-shaking shock show. Cronus and She-Devil. Cronus, the most horrifying monster of all time, sucking up the world's lifeblood and atomic energy to keep his fiendish world of outer space alive. And She-Devil, hell's most gorgeous demon. Unearthly takes you into horror beyond imagination. Starring John Carradine, a mad menace to humanity, as the scientist possessed by a passion to remake people. Alison Hayes, the beauty slated to be his next victim. Now, my dear, tell me what's bothering you. I don't know, Doctor. I'm just frightened all the time. You mustn't be afraid, not of anything. I want you to have absolute confidence in me. Trust me implicitly. I have found out how now to add to the 16 existing glands a 17th. Artificially developed a new gland. What this gland does to this blonde beauty when it's electrolyted in her body is an experience and horror almost unbelievable. Now listen, you and Grace take the main road into town. Remember, stay in the shadows till you're clear of the house. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
Hello there, Monster Kid Radio Hits. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are looking at FM 37 from February of 1966. It is loaded with movie articles, so let's dig right in. First up is the cover story, a film book for the Harryhausen classic, 20 Million Miles to Earth. It is the first of two parts and is just the story. Part one has 11 pages and eight photos. Let's hear a highlight when the emir hatches from its egg. But the moon wasn't shining for her alone. Its beams slanted through the window of the mobile home and picked out the shiny form of the gelatinous blob on the doctor's workbench. The strange shape inside the mass had more definition now. It began to move, to shift, to struggle. Slowly, a crack formed in the slick surface. It grew longer, wider. Then something burst through the shell. A tiny fist with three talon-like fingers. She whirled, and the sight of the thing on the workbench drained the blood from her face. She stifled a scream in her throat and stared. It was some 15 inches high, and the moonlight delineated its grotesque shape. Its incredibly long, lizard-like tail swished behind it. Its head was nightmarish, like that of a medieval dragon's. It waved its three-taloned hand helplessly in the air and hissed at her as if in fright. Marissa stood rooted to the spot, watching the creature's frightened eyes. It began to back away as if fearful of an attack. Her hand went out automatically and flicked the light switch. The creature jumped at the sudden burst of light in the room. Next up is a short article on Hunchback of Notre Dame movies, which lists some interesting facts for the three well-known versions. It is three pages with six photos. This is what was said before the second part of the Night of the Blood Beast film book. We thought we saw the whole thing last issue. Your story on Night of the Blood Beast was going great, wrote reader Richard Contini of St. Louis, Missouri, when it suddenly ended so abruptly that I couldn't believe my eyes. You concluded the article without explaining what the blood beast was or how it came to Earth, what kind of aliens were in the astronaut's blood, or what happened at the end of the movie. It may have been a fine way to end it for anyone that had seen the film, but I unfortunately never had. So what happened, and why did you end it this way? Dick's questions and comments were typical of other curious readers who wrote in asking for the rest of the blood beast. Cutting the story off without telling the last reel was entirely unintentional, an oversight in the makeup department. After going to press, it was discovered to the publisher's horror that a page of copy had been omitted about the thing that hunted heads, and heads rolled. Turn page for the conclusion of the story. The new film, The Skull, is given a synopsis with four pages and five photos. Here is its introduction. No ordinary skull, this. Behind empty sockets, once possessed of eyes, an uncanny kind of sight still stares out baefully at the world. And the brain, which once dwelt beneath the bone, it too, in some dreadful way, lives on. This and more can be seen at your peril in the new Paramount release co-starring Britain's most popular paired bogeymen. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Adapted from Robert Bloch's weird tale, The Skull of the Marquis de Sade, the screenplay is by the producer of Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Next up, a four-page look at Fiend Without a Face, which is four pages with four photos. It is part of the Inside Dr. Acula series, but Foy doesn't really tell us if he likes it or not. Just a short history and a brief synopsis. A photo story of the picture of Darian Gray is next, two pages and three photos. Bird Eye Gordon's Village of the Giants gets two pages and four photos to whet your giant monster appetite. 
Blood Creature, also known as Terra is a Man, gets four pages and four photos of coverage. Here are some notes. Blood Creature was originally released in 1959 as Terra is a Man. The screenplay by Harry Paul Harbour, photography by Emmanuel Rojas, and music by Aristan Alino, added to the direction of Jerry DeLeon, made the film what it was, a unique experience in motion picture terror. Francis Lederer, who portrayed Dr. Girard in the film, also appeared in the horror film The Return of Dracula. Like Christopher Lee, he is a truly international star, for he is the master of six languages and a motion picture actor well-known in Germany, France, Portugal, and Austria. His career can be compared roughly to that of Bela Lugosi, although Francis Lederer has not been typecast as a monster actor. Born in Prague, where he was a student, he achieved overnight stardom as Romeo in Max Reinhardt's production of Romeo and Juliet. Following the consequent fame in European countries, Mr. Lederer went on to London, where he, like Lugosi, learned his first English role phonetically. The lure of the British sage faltered, and he next succumbed to the promise of Broadway, where Edna Ferber called him the greatest actor in the world today. A very busy writer, director, and lecturer, Mr. Lederer is a frequent speaker at universities and clubs, where his talks range from film and theater arts to social sciences and juvenile delinquency. Greta Thyssen, who played the role of Frances, was Miss Denmark of 1954, which honor led her to the world of stage, screen, and television. Her other horror film was the sci-fi Journey to the Seventh Planet. Richard Durr is, believe it or not, a musical comedy star. How he was cast for a dramatic part in a horror film must be a story in itself. To those who keep up with checklists and credits, Richard Durr is remembered as one of the actors in When Worlds Collide, the George Powell super spectacle of 1953. These combined talents fashioned Blood Creature into a film that was quiet, sensibly restrained, and quite terrifying. The suspense builds logically and dramatically to the climax when the various elements of a good horror film, pathos, chilling terror, and visual shock reach their gruesome finale. Finally, we have a 12-page, eight-photo film book of Return of the Vampire. Here is its brief introduction. In 1958, the Czechoslovakian actor Francis Lederer donned the cloak of the Demon of Darkness to play the role immortalized by Bela Lugosi. United Artists made the picture. Here is the story. On television, it is known as The Curse of Dracula. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Preacher with the Atom Ray. A motion picture shot full of thrills based on scientific facts described in leading national magazines. You'll be hypnotized. You'll be terrorized. You'll be paralyzed. See a dead man come from beyond the grave. See Columbia Pictures startling... Creature with the Atom Ray. Out from the coldest and darkest regions of the sea, as old as time itself, comes the most terrifying monster the world has ever seen. The Creature! Slithering over the face of the earth came a monster from beyond the stars. Inhuman, indestructible, life on this planet was doomed when it conquered the world! 
These will be the strangest, most terrifying motion pictures you have ever seen. You will see monsters from a nightmare. The most horrifying creatures that ever made you wake up screaming. <coughs> the She-Creatures! And it conquered the world! Hello, police tank orders? This is Carter, Johnny Carter. Oh, sure, they're from another planet. What a dilemma for young lovers Steve Terrell and Gloria Castillo. You thought I was kidding. Nobody will believe the invasion of the saucer men. All this makes it seem natural for a beer-drinking bull to appoint himself chaperone of Lover's Lane. Hey, for Pete's sake! And a farmer with the longest shotgun you've ever seen plays the villain. What's so funny? Well, I expected to be frightened on my wedding night, but nothing like this. It's our busy night, too. We've been flooded with calls from people who say they've seen flying saucers and little green monsters. Wonder how that rumor ever got started. It's too fantastic to believe. Just think of it. Only this special unit and the President of the United States will know what happened here tonight. You mean you think we know what's happened? Listeners, I've talked about this a little bit in the past, and I keep bringing it up, and I apologize if it's getting old, but before Monster Kid Radio, I produced a zombie movie podcast, and I always tried to make sure that, in addition to the newer zombie fair at the time, I would go into the past and look at some of the historical zombie movies that had come before. And back then, I was even at one point considering putting together a list, or maybe even a book, of the top 50 zombie movies you must see before you die and come back as a zombie. And I would have put this movie on that list. This week's movie is The Zombies of Moratau, and I'm talking about it with friend of the show, Tom Gorgonis. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, Derek. Thank you for asking, and howdy, Monster Kids. That's right. It's uh, 2021. We haven't had you on the show proper in a little while. I know that we catch up every week in the Monster Kid Movie Club and all that, but how have things been going so far for you? So far, so good. Things are, are pretty normal here in North Carolina, and with us, um, I have no complaints so far. Well, we'll try to not ruin that through this recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Tom is the man behind Go Forth and Game over at GoForthAndGame.com. What's been going on with the website over there? Um, it's been pretty quiet. The pandemic kind of knocked my gaming uh, abilities to almost zero because uh, I can't get together with my game groups and play anything. So been some solo gaming been posting a few articles every now and then i tried to record a podcast with you and steve and had audio issues on my end uh, but we are going to revisit that i have not forgotten it's it's a shame too that was a great conversation oh it was so much fun um but yeah things are slow i'm trying to um get some things lined up for upcoming 
podcast. I'm recording a session with my friend Micah Harris. So Micah Harris. Okay, cool. Yep. We're going to talk about his novels in that, and that will probably get me good to maybe three hours of content there, and then we'll see where we go from there. I'm, I'm hopefully going to get back to doing a little bit of reviews and focusing on monster themed stuff like I did in October, November. Right on. And, and this isn't a dig on Micah at all, but as a fellow writer... I, I can say with certainty, you're going to get at least three hours of content out of him if you're going to let him start talking about his work. Oh, um, I've known Mike. <laughs> Micah is probably one of my oldest friends. We met in 1982 or 83, uh, freshman in college in science fiction literature class. Nice. And Micah is responsible for a lot of my taste in movies. He's my second person to get me back into monster movies back then and is responsible for getting me into comics also. Right on. Um, so we've been hanging out for a very long time and, you know, we keep up on Facebook. So he's going to come and talk about his novels. Oh, it'll be fun. When are you doing that? Like, if, if it's anytime soon, tell him I said hi. It's been too long since I've communicated with him. If everything goes well, we're going to talk on Saturday because <laughs> – I had to schedule it for a Saturday, you know, so I'd have plenty of time to talk. Um, doing it on a weeknight, I would not have been able to get up the next morning because it would have been 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning before I get to bed. But, uh, All right, well, I won't hold it against you when you don't show up to the Monster Kid Movie Club, but otherwise. Oh, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not going to be talking until the evening, so. So let's do a quick promo for Monster Kid Movie Club. What are we showing on Saturday? Have you figured it out yet? Uh, for this far ahead, for what we're recording today, um, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> because this recording will be going out not this week's recording, but next week. Oh, that's right. So so I'm not 100% so, sure yet, but stay tuned. There is a, uh, a Facebook page and a Facebook uh, announcement will be made there and Twitter as well. Uh, so, yeah, just stay tuned. You, you, know, you know, you could include this movie if you're able. I don't know if it's in public domain or not, but it was on YouTube, so. Yeah, I you know, I don't. I'm not 100% sure about the status of this film. Yeah. That said, I would love to. You could do, well, you've been doing themes. You could do a zombie theme. I know, I know. That's that's what I'm wondering. You know, white zombie. You know, there's white zombie, king of the king zombies. King of the zombies, you know, revolt of the zombies. Not a living dead. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can oh, do. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I'm thinking stuff. about it. Okay. I don't, I, don't, I don't know about getting too entrenched in zombie stuff again. Yeah. After having, but... You know, it just so happens this happens to be one of the, the good ones. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Cool. So we'll see, man. We'll see. Uh, I'll keep you posted. And I'll keep everybody else posted. Of too. course. And Monster Kids, if you're listening to this and you're not doing Monster Kid Movie Club on Saturdays and uh, Monster Kid Astronomy Club on Tuesdays, you might have to turn in your Monster Kid card. Oh, well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, <laughs> you, you might get sit in the corner for a little while then. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a super blast. Uh, we have a ton of fun in the chat. There's so many people over there who know about all kinds of different stuff related to all these movies. And it's just a lot of fun. 
I've made so many friends over there. It's, it's just amazing. So thank you again, as always, Derek, for doing this for us. Oh, well, thank you for being part of it. Thank you for being part of the community. And thanks for recommending this movie. Um, cool. Which, you know, I do want to talk about and that sort of thing, but I wanted to catch up with you first and yes. just kind of see what was going on with the, the website and the podcast. Do you have any other projects coming up or anything you want to talk about or can talk about at this point? Well, apparently I committed myself to making a Monster Kid radio game on Saturday. Uh, well, you and about five other people all jumped at it. Like, yeah, wow. <laughs> me, and, me and Jeff and Steve, I think, are going to try to do something. Chris. Chris, Chris? Something too. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see what happens. I've been thinking this week to see if I had a design or an idea that I could flip over to a monster theme, and I'm still working on that. Yeah, I, I have no idea what a Monster Kid radio game would be. I mean, outside of the one. game. I know. I mean, outside of the one we're about to play. That's right. You know, <laughs> I don't know what a Monster Kid like board game or, or, or tabletop game would look like. So uh, let's stick to the card game because I know how to do that. Sure. The card game. It's the Classic Five. The Classic Five! So, the Classic Five, it's a game that we play on every episode of Monster Kid Radio, typically. Uh, it is a deck of cards, an actual deck of cards, that I'll try not to spill on the floor this time. Uh, each one of these cards is a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no ring answers. The questions are all about monster movies. It's kind of a way to pass the time, break the ice, or just have fun with your friends. Tom, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? Always. One more shuffle. Right off of the top. Hopefully these are not ones that you've done recently. What was the most recent kaiju film that you've watched? That would be whichever one was the last. Uh, Destroy All Planets, I believe, because it was in uh, Monster Kid Movie Club the previous Saturday when we did Gamera Time. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah we had a Gamera Day. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed Gamera Day because I hadn't seen – all the way through uh, several of those. So thanks for doing that. I appreciate those that. are fun. They are those fun. can be a lot of fun, and uh, you know they're not movies that I can show because of how recent they are. But there's a trilogy of Gamera films from the '90s. Yeah, highly recommend if you haven't seen them yet, Tom. I, have I can't not. recommend them enough. Oh, they are so good. Some of the best '90s kaiju films, right there. That's on the list. Okay. <laughs> oh, another kaiju card. Oh. I did shuffle these, right? Yeah, I did shuffle. Yeah. Everybody heard that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, card number two. <laughs> what kaiju who never had a film of its own do you wish had a standalone movie? Ooh, that's interesting. Angaris. Huh. I just like Angaris. You like the design? The, the story? I like, like the design. I like the way it sounds. Mm, yeah. And, you know, there's the, the rolly ball thing that he does, which is pretty cool. <laughs> I could go back and say number two would be Jet Jaguar. Yes. We need a punch, punch, punch movie. Yes, we do. Punch, punch, punch. Although, and here we go. I'm going to thank you again for something, but I've been watching Ultra Q. Nice. That's not, Dave, we thank Mark Matsky for that. That's amazing. Yes, yes, we do. Um, I just watched uh, Primordial Amphibian Raygon. Oh yeah! So I'm tra I'm tracking right along with Mark in the show. That's a cool design, just like you said. So you know, a a, a Raygon movie with a giant Raygon would be cool too. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I love the Ultraman kaiju, and they're so. It's all interesting to me because when they were in production, 
they're doing it week after week after week, and they've got to come up yeah. with a new kaiju design every single week. It's amazing. And that just blows my mind. Now, as the series progresses, they start recycling some of their things or upgrading or whatever. But, man, the first time you see Pigmon, the first time you see Red King, the first time you see Raygon, it's amazing. So. Yeah, it's it's a fun show, too. And you, you pegged it pretty good. I don't know when you said this, but as a Japanese X-Files mm, with, mm-hmm. with monsters. Yeah, yeah it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it, man. Absolutely. I've really had enjoyed having Mark on the show to cover those. So that's, yeah. that's cool. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> All yeah. right. Guard number three. What is your favorite follow-up to The Invisible Man? This comes from the Universal deck. Uh, you know, I heard you ask that question on the last episode. Oh, no. I was like, yeah. And I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that one again, because I have to say, I've only seen The Invisible Man. I hadn't seen any of the uh, follow-ups. Oh, okay. But if we can say a film that has Invisible in the title. Sure. I just watched The Invisible Ray, which was fantastic. Was that a first-time watch for you? Uh, it was a first-time watch for me, yeah. Nice. I had I got the Lugosi-Karloff four-film set, universal set, for Christmas. And I've um, watched all the first three, Black Cat, Invisible Ray, then The Raven, right. and Black Friday. Maybe I'll watch this Friday. Since there you it's go. And it's, they're phenomenal. The Raven was amazing. Lugosi is just absolutely breathtaking in that oh and you can tell he's having so much fun he is and his his face is so expressive and he gets his hands involved too and it's just like oh my gosh you can tell he was a stage actor yeah it makes all the difference in the world yeah yeah i know that he used to wish that he was like the clark gable type the romantic lead type but man he was really good and had a lot of fun playing those villains. Man. I didn't realize he was as tall as he was also. Oh, yeah. He's he's a giant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm 6'4", so, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I'm glad you like the Invisible Ray. That's one that doesn't get talked about yeah. enough, I feel like. Uh, I haven't talked about it here on the show proper. I was going to do something at one point with somebody, but it just, life got in the way. Uh, yep. But well, it's, it's a good put one. Put that on our list at some point if you want. <laughs> As I it keeps double, growing. Yeah, I should double check with the other person first to make sure he doesn't Absolutely. just that I had bumped him. But uh, yeah, it's just a phenomenal movie. So awesome. Cool. Glad you liked it. All right. All All right. Number three. Four. Uh, number four. Number four. Yeah. All right. Number four. Here it is. Okay. Edward Von Sloan. You prefer him as Dracula's Van Helsing, Frankenstein's Dr. Waldman, or the Mummy's Dr. Muller? I have to go with Van Helsing. Yeah, he's got a lot of weight and, and gravitas in that. I can't remember. I watched The Mummy recently, but I don't remember if his part is any bigger or smaller. It's a smaller part. It is a smaller part, yeah. He's pretty iconic in that, even though you know Cushing is the Van Helsing. He's the uh, second Van Helsing, <laughs> if you want to go that route. I think I've said this before, either on the stream or on the show, that I feel like with with the Van Helsings. Peter Cushing is my guy if I want somebody to, you know, go into battle with against vampires. But if I was to sit down to take a class about vampires, it's it's Edward Von Sloan. I could go with that, yeah. And then somebody always brings up, well, what about Seven Golden Vampires? He's teaching a class there. It's like, ah, yeah, whatever. It's a different Van Helsing. There you go. There you go. All right, final card. What character from a classic monster movie would you want as an action figure? Ooh, the Gargantua twins. Oh, that'd be yeah. awesome. 
Life size would be cool. Life size. <laughs> Where would you keep them? We have a farm down in eastern North Carolina. We could put them down there. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love it. Yeah. But yeah, I love that movie. So that's my favorite kaiju movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It may it may be one of the other than the God's Godzilla stuff. That's the first one I remember watching. Huh. was War of the Gargantuas. And I really want to see Frankenstein Conquers the World because I still haven't seen that yet. Oh, wow. And they really need to make a really nice Blu-ray double feature of those two movies. Yeah, I can't remember who put them out as a double feature before, but I think it's out of print at this point. Yeah. And it was a DVD release. I know that uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World was released on Blu-ray in Japan. And, yeah. and somebody sent it to me uh, when it first came out. It was a couple of years ago. Somebody ordered it and had it sent to me. But guess what it doesn't have? English subtitles or, or language at all. <laughs> it looks amazing. You need a friend like I had in college who would translate for you. <laughs> That's how I first, I first saw my, my first viewing of my neighbor Totoro was the Japanese version with someone translating for us. That's amazing. It was pretty amazing. I keep telling myself that I'm going to sign up for like, is it Duolingo or something like that to teach yeah. myself? Because I need to learn Japanese so I can watch the kaiju films. And I need to learn Spanish so I can watch the rest of the Luchador movies that haven't been translated right. or, or dubbed. So, yeah. yeah. So Because, you know, those are the important goals to have in life. Why do you want to learn another language? Well, because I want to watch more movies. Yeah, right. Now, you were not going to put that on your on your resume, on your CV. Why? <laughs> they asked you, so why did you learn Japanese? Well, you know, I needed to be more international and blah, blah, blah. I wanted to watch Godzilla in the original language. There you go. If you're lucky, though, you would get a monster kid that was interviewing you, and that would be an immediate you're hired. You know, it, it didn't end up in an immediate you're hired, but I did have an interview last year with somebody. Uh, man, I forget what it was for. It was like some sales job. And I think the guy knew that my heart wasn't really in the idea of doing this, another sales job. But in the interview, one of the questions he asked was, where would you like to travel to? If you could travel somewhere, anywhere, where would you go? And I said, Japan. He said, really? Why? Why Japan? And I told him because I love Godzilla and Ultraman. And it turned into like a 20-minute conversation about how cool Ultraman is and all the Ultraman stuff in Japan because apparently he wow. had been there. And uh, yeah, I, I have a feeling if I had gotten the job there, he and I wouldn't get a lot of work done. <laughs> um, it, it was that It'd kind be, of vibe, you know? It'd be flying back and forth to Japan every other week. Oh, man. Now I wish I did get the job, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so... Ultraman fan who was going to hire Derek, <laughs> he's still available. Give him a call, and you can talk. That's right. <laughs> I'm I'm available. I'm looking for work, and I'm am willing to travel to places in Japan that have the bars dedicated to Ultraman Kaiju, which they do have over there. Um, there wow. is a bar, and they have people in the Kaiju suits walking around, and. You know, I don't That's drink amazing. anything like that, but dude, I would go and just, yeah. <laughs> that would be, uh, yeah, I don't drink either, but I go there just to sit right? and watch. Right. Yeah. And may, that would be cool. It's almost, you know, it's kind of a Disneyland world kind of thing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I would. Hmm. For us. I would, I would totally be all over that. So yeah, listeners, if there's anybody out there who's looking to hire somebody to work at the Ultraman bar. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, we'll work for pictures with kaiju. How about that? There you go. We'll wear kaiju suit for food. Hey, and dude, like I said, I'm 6'4". I'm taller than the average Japanese citizen. Oh, so, man, that's right. You know, I would be the perfect kaiju walk-around dude. <laughs> so, in six weeks, it's Monster Kid Radio from Japan. <laughs> There you go. There you go. <laughs> You'd have to learn Japanese at that point. That's true. That's true. Or I could just refuse to speak in anything but growls and roars, you know, just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Skronk! Skronk! <laughs> okay. Well, that was the Classic Five and a blast. That was awesome. Yes, that was great. <laughs> uh, and see, we do that punch, every punch, week punch. in the Monster Kid Movie Club. So make sure yes, you come by for that. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're going to switch gears. We're going to go from kaiju to zombies. And I used to get real, I don't know, not hipstery, but kind of like, well, you know, I know more about zombies than you do. Whenever I'd come across a, a thread or a post online about how Night of the Living Dead started everything and Night of the Living Dead was the first zombie movie and all that. And while I do love that movie and mad respect for George Romero, and I'm still a Romero fan. You know, even though I don't do zombie stuff much anymore these days, Romero's my guy, and I will watch his movies anytime. Zombie movies have been around since 1932. You know, White yeah. Zombie was uh, the first zombie film. It, it takes just a few minutes for the word zombie to be mentioned on screen. Zombies, in particular, right. uh, to be specific, is mentioned on screen. And there have been a number of zombie movies uh, that took place before Night of the Living Dead hit the screens. Night of the Living Dead did change things. It was kind of like a paradigm shift. I think I still firmly believe that that movie, uh, Psycho, started the shift. Night of the yep. Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Those movies really kind of spun American horror cinema in a different direction. But right. there are still zombie movies before any of this. And this is one of the good ones. Uh, I was very surprised to enjoy it as much as I did this time around, even yeah. though I'd seen it repeatedly over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I watched it the first time sometime last year. Just ran across it on YouTube. And... Watched it and was like, huh, that was pretty good. And I think I watched it again later on. And then, you know, I mentioned this would be a cool one for us to do. And I watched it three times in the last week or so. <laughs> wow. Does, did it hold up every time? It, it Actually, it gets better when you watch it. Wow. Um, you can look for stuff, you know, as you do when on repeated watch. You can look for things that – or pay attention – to different things as you're watching. The first time, you know, you're you're looking at the story and, you know, what's how things, how cool things look and just kind of a general overview. And then you can think about it and say, oh, that part was pretty cool. And when you watch it the next time, you pay more attention to that part. Yeah, so that's what I kind of did when I watched it again, particularly this weekend. I watched it twice this weekend. Right on. So, Yeah. It's a fun, fun movie. It really is. And it's short. It's like 70 minutes. So it's not a yep. huge investment of time. Uh, and it's it's very well paced and directed. I feel like Edward L. Kahn is somebody who doesn't get enough attention or appreciation, I suppose, as a director yeah. when it comes to these movies. Because he did a handful of monster movies in addition to a bunch of other things. I was surprised. Uh, he did a bunch of genre stuff. Some of, some really good ones, too. I mean, he mm -hmm. did he did It. Uh, the Terror from Beyond Space, The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake, which is a really cool movie, yep. uh, in Invisible Invaders, which is great, and a few other ones that are um, 
not as good as those three, but are still solid classics. Mm-hmm. I mean, Invasion of the Saucer Men, Voodoo Woman, yep. She Creature, some other movies uh, that he did that I think a lot of monster kids should know <laughs> or, or yeah, do know. Right. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say should. I'm not going to tell you how to be a fan. But you know, th- these are movies that I think you'd appreciate if you've not seen them as monster kids. Uh, and Creature with the Atom Brain, which has more zombie elements in it. I'm not. That's one I had not seen yet. I'd seen most of the rest of them. I really like Creature with the Atom Brain. But okay. I think part of the reason why I like that one so much uh, is because it's got Richard Denning. Richard Denning, yeah. And that's my guy. Richard Denning is amazing. I, I really I enjoy Hagar him. was your guy. Well, he's up there too, as is Nick Adams. Yeah, as is, and Richard Carlson. Yeah, well, Richard Carlson, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but Richard Denning's great. He's somebody he whose is. filmography I've been exploring more and more lately, and not just not just the genre stuff. Like I, I saw him not too long ago in like a film noir kind of thing. Uh, oh, he'd be good in that. Oh, he was great. He was fantastic. The only thing he has going against him in those roles is that he's got light colored hair. Yeah. And for whatever reason, noir heroes have to be brunette. I don't know why they have to have brown hair. They just they do in my head. They just do, yeah. yeah. But but beyond that, I mean, he's and he's got this kind of blue collar kind of vibe to him too. Okay, uh, in, in a lot of movies, and I really appreciate yeah, yep. that. But that's neither here nor there when it comes to this film. <laughs> but this <laughs> one does have another zombie connection, or I'm sorry, not a zombie. This one does have another creature connection, though. Yes, I'm trying to think what is the other creature connection. Uh, 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 yes, oh oh oh, somebody was in Creature Walks Among Us. Walks. Yes, who was it? Uh, we got Greg Palmer. In Greg this. Palmer, yeah, the the lead in this movie, right? And he was uh, in the Creature Walks Among Us. Um, he's done a handful of other genre things as well, but you know, there's your creature there's, connection. There, it goes back to my whole: every movie can be connected to the creature in like five steps yep. or less. Yep, seven degrees of the Gill Man. That's right. I don't know if we mentioned it on camera or on. Anyways. The, this movie has a fantastic pedigree. I mean, we've got Khan directing it. Palmer's in it. Palmer was in a bunch of uh, or several genres movies. In addition to Creature, he did From Hell It Came. Mm-hmm. And then one called Scream in 1981, which I had never heard of before. But he was in Star Trek, the original series also, mm-hmm. Inspector of the Gun. So he he did well, and then Allison Hayes is in this, and everybody knows Allison Hayes from Fifty Foot Woman, but she was in a bunch of other genre stuff. Mm-hmm. She's in Hypnotic Act, The Crawling Hand. Ah, yes. Disembodied, The Unearthly, and a bunch of TV stuff yep. that was genre. Yeah. And yeah, the only two that didn't have a lot of genre work were autumn russell who plays jan she's the love interest mm-hmm. and ashley the guy who played the captain of the ship or autumn's only appearance that i could find was in this movie and then ashley was in an episode of lights out and that's the only one i see him he, in yeah he did a lot of television and a lot of uh looks like like westerns and things like that which yeah. makes sense he looks like a cowboy type yeah, everybody in this movie did westerns. <laughs> I think it's everybody in the fifties did westerns. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And um, Morse Ankrum is in this. Mm-hmm. Who every you know, monster kids should know him from the four Mars movies that he did. 
I was surprised by that. Rocket ship XM, flight to Mars, red planet Mars, and invaders from Mars. Uh, Earth versus the flying saucer, Kronos, beginning of the end, giant claw, and a bunch of other stuff. Yep. And then Marjorie Eaton. She was in several things genre related. Uh, ah, Here's one that I was not expecting. In her filmography, she was in Empire Strikes Back. As the Emperor. What? I don't know if that's true or not, but it was on IMDb. Maybe it was a cameo thing. Somebody and you know, she's the Emperor just walking away and you can't actually see her face or anything. I don't know. That's something to be investigated. Well, okay, so I was a Star Wars nerd growing up. And in the original Empire, now they've since changed it with the special editions and whatever. Right. But in the original, the only time you see the Emperor is when Vader's talking to him via like hologram in that right. one scene, and that's it. So I wonder if she wore the makeup and they had Could somebody be. else do the voice. Yeah. Wow. There's your homework for the night, Derek. You know what? I'm, I'm looking up um, that film, Empire Strikes Back, and... There's a separate actor listed as the uh, voice of the emperor, um, right. Clive Revel or Revel. So I wonder if she did the the yeah, if she was the the body, the David Prowse part of it of the equation, right. and had somebody else come in and do the voice. Interesting. Wow. I see. I didn't dig that far into her background. I should have because I, I really I didn't liked her. Skip over into something somebody else. No, no, I didn't dig that far into it at all. I I, I really liked her in the film. She was great. Yeah. I mean, she held a lot of the movie together for me. She really, really did. She was the strongest actor in the movie. Mm -hmm. Everything I kept reading when I was researching about this compared her to Maria uh, from The Wolfman, uh, the gypsy lady. What's her last name? Oh, Maria Ospenskaya. Ospenskaya, yeah. Yeah. Uh, She brings that kind of vibe to the the movie. She does, but heavier. Heavier, yeah. She's very doom and gloom because she's sick and tired of these all these people trying to come and disturb her all the time. I mean, she's just tired of it, and you kind of get that in the movie. And she's like, you know, I told you not to come, and here you are now, and now I got to take care of you, and I got to rescue you. If you just do what I say, everything would be all right. Mm-hmm. And she's just flabbergasted with people most of the time. She's got the the nicest part. And she really, like you said, she does carry the movie. She ca- she keeps things together. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think she's fantastic. And I mean, overall, I like all of the cast. Yeah, um, yeah. I-, I think everybody did a really good job. I think some standouts: Allison Hayes, of course. Oh gosh, she huge, was huge, amazing standout. in this. Yeah, yeah. Before we get too far into it, just to kind of right. let people know what the movie's about: there's an island. There is off the coast uh, a shipwreck that is known to have a safe full of diamonds. And people have been coming over and over and over again over the years to try to dig these out. And they always die because there are zombies (laughs) that everybody who lives here seems to know about. So much so that in the opening part of the film, when somebody runs one over... He doesn't stop. He doesn't even care. And probably wouldn't, we wouldn't even have that scene if he didn't have a passenger in the back of the car who freaked out about the whole thing. He's just like, well, you know, and there's even a a moment where I feel like he's casting a glance behind him to see if she's going to react because eh, it happens, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was one of them. (laughs) Yeah. He says, yeah. 
that, that's the setup. And Greg Palmer's character, Jeff, and George Harrison, played by Joel Ashley, and crew come because they're the next group of people that are going to try to dig out these diamonds. Even though Grandmother Peters, Marjorie Eaton, doesn't want them there and worries that they're all going to die. And even gives them a little field trip <laughs> sightseeing <laughs> tour. See here, this is the first grave where the first group of people came. And then this is when the Americans showed up. And then here's this group of people. And there's where Allison Hayes is going to fall into an already dug grave that's just waiting for everybody else who's going to die this time around. And yeah. oh, it's, it's fantastic. It is. It, there was five previous expeditions that have come through. Like 30 people have died trying to get these diamonds out of this wreck. Yeah. And and they walk up and there's five or six graves already dug. And she and it said, what are these for us? And she just kind of looks at them and keeps on going with what she was talking about and doesn't even really. <laughs> and then, like you said, Allison Hayes falls into one, which is a nice little bit of foreshadowing, actually, I thought. There's a couple of moments of foreshadowing involving her character. One that was incredibly subtle that I don't know if – it was really meant to be. Which one was that? Well, there's a scene later on with her and everybody else around the table. They may be having breakfast or a meal of some sort. They're having a meal. I just don't remember if it was a breakfast yeah. or dinner. And people start getting kind of you know, snippy with each other. This is kind of a stressful situation. There's all this talk of zombies. Somebody died on the way here and almost nobody seems to react other than, well, we just got to bury him, I guess. Yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> And they're they're kind of going back and forth. And at one point, Mona, played by Allison, gets into a little bit of an uh, argument with somebody else at the table. And it might have even been George, her husband. And as the camera kind of pulls back and not focuses on her anymore, but focuses more on the group, you see her grab a serving knife. Just briefly, like, oh, yeah? But she doesn't do anything with it. Right, right. And, yeah. and she's getting worked up and... You know, okay, I can see that. I don't remember know. it, but I it, was probably real paying subtle. attention to somebody else at that point. So it, now I got to watch it again. <laughs> Darn, um, it's real subtle, real subtle, uh, right? And, and just happens real quick. And you know, it's almost as if they were cutting around it or they didn't mean to show it, but they do. She's really kind of getting into the role and, and, right. and into the argument and the anger. And she grabs that knife and then moving on to the next part of the argument or discussion. Really interesting, yeah, yeah. That and that's one thing that comes out in this movie is that none of the characters in this movie, well, not none of them, but most of the characters in this movie really don't like each other very much. <laughs> they're kind of shoved together and are doing this job right? because they're greedy. So George Harrison is funding the expedition. He's hired Jeff Clark played by Greg Palmer to be the diver because he's a diver and he, they're going to hire him to go get the diamonds. But as the movie progresses, he starts to trust him less and less. And even towards the end, when things start to fall apart, he thinks that he's trying to rob him, even though they right. came there together. <laughs> like, yeah. where else is he going to go? He's stuck on an island with these people. Right. So, yeah. It, and, and Allison Hayes' character's, you know, a floozy. You know, she's flirting with Palmer's character. Mm hmm through the whole movie, right in front of her husband. Yep. And, you know, it's obvious that they don't particularly like each other that much either. Oh, very obvious. He decks her it, once. It, oh, that's true. Yeah, he slaps her pretty, pretty – here's the only 
language that you seem to understand or something like that. I think's what he said. It's pretty brutal. And yeah, it's kind of the last time we see her. Well, we already gave a spoiler warning. It's the last time we see her yeah. alive. Right. Yeah. Is, is her receiving some abuse at the hands of her husband? Cause she goes running off after that. And then, uh, well, I guess Morris Ankrum's character's pretty agreeable because he's not there to necessarily to get the diamonds. In fact, he doesn't even get a share of the diamonds that was brought out at the beginning. Mm-hmm. He's there writing a book about the wreck and all the the expeditions that have come before. Mm-hmm. He's a writer, a researcher kind of person. Which I found interesting. If you look at the history of zombie cinema, if you go back and and you look to see where zombies kind of entered into the Western pop culture and American pop culture. It was because somebody went on an expedition like this and wrote a book called Magic Island by William Seabrook. Uh, It's called The Magic Island. It was released in 1929. And in this book, in addition to other things, he talks about his experiences with Haitian voodoo and witchcraft Mm -hmm. rituals and things like that. And William William Seabrook is one of these adventurer types that would go out into the world and release these books detailing his adventures. He didn't just write The Magic Island. He wrote a number of them. But this is where he talks about zombies and how somebody made a zombie. And supposedly that information is what would go on to inspire a stage play and then also would go on to inspire things like white zombie okay so i found it really interesting that we have a character kind of like that somebody not necessarily that he's exploring zombies for his book but you know he's a guy who goes out on expeditions and writes about what he finds and i found that really interesting as well that's pretty neat yeah that's a a, a neat archetype that mm-hmm. could be explored more. You don't really see a lot of that these days because everything's no. on the internet and, you know, you probably have people going out making YouTube videos instead of writing a book, you know, that sort of thing. Well, but yeah. I found it interesting though. Really neat. Cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Thanks for that information. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. And, and then we've got, uh, Jan, we've mentioned her before. Um, she's the girl in the back of the car when the zombie gets run over by the chauffeur mm-hmm. Butler guy. And she freaks out, and he's like, just talk to your grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> and they get, the, you know, he gets there, and they get out of the car, and grandmother's waiting, or great-grandmother, actually, mm-hmm. is waiting there. And he says, she's like, oh, we ran over a guy. And he's like, oh, no, it was one of them, you know, with the seaweed. And she's <laughs> like, just forget about it, Jan. Don't worry about it. Just forget about it. And Jan's freaking out, and grandma's like, look, just calm down. It'll be all right. Don't worry about it. So we know something's going on uh, pretty soon. Not too long after that, we see get to see another one of another zombies pops up, and uh, which was I thought was a pretty cool scene. Jan's looking out the window. Her grandma's standing down at the dock, and here comes this guy out of the woods, walks right past grandma and walks right down into the water, and just you know he's gone. And Jan runs downstairs and says, well, "What in the world?" And grandma's like, oh, don't worry about it. (laughs) Everything will be okay. Yeah, she really does kind of downplay everything, even though she wants them to just up and leave and forget about the diamonds. Right. Uh, Eventually, she kind of comes around and is like, you know what? I'm tired of burying people. Just get the diamonds. Just just retrieve them. I'm I'm over it. I'm tired of of this, you know. We f- come to find out that one of the zombies is her husband, mm-hmm. who is the captain of the ship. And I guess we should mention why there are zombies. There are zombies because these diamonds were a treasure supposedly in a temple and the 
the sailors of the Susan B, that's the wreck, stole them and were cursed for stealing the diamonds from the temple. Mm-hmm. So now you've got, you know, 10 or 12 zombie sailors walking around the island and under the water and all around for 50 or so years, I think it's been. It's been a while. Something like yeah, that, it, yeah. It predates the Americans showing up, so for sure. Well, the, the first date that she came to was 1908 or 1906 mm-hmm. with the first expedition. So it would have had to happen. You know, the wreck would have been not too long before that probably. And then they're currently at, what, in the 40s maybe, I'm guessing. I'd, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they ever really say this movie came out in the yeah they 57, don't. So I mean, it could have been a contemporary film at the time or older, right? I'm not really sure. But there were you know five previous expeditions made up of two British expeditions, Portuguese expedition, uh, American one or two American expeditions, and all of them were killed by zombies. Yeah, and are and are buried there in her backyard. Well, yeah. they're either buried in the backyard or they've got some zombies hanging out in a mausoleum too. Which right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Why she didn't lock the door on that thing? I don't know. Um, <laughs> seems like that would <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of the problems, but there's there's a couple of things that you're like. One of the big things that they press in this movie because. It's like you said, the pacing is quick. We get to the zombies right off. You know, you get the guy who gets run over, and then there's a the dude who walks down into the water, and then pretty soon later on after that, I think we get a glimpse of a couple of them um, on the ship. The One of them kills one of the sailors on the ship. Mm-hmm. And then you get Jan and Jeff going to investigate, you know, this guy that got run over because Jan just – she won't let it go. And so they go, and there's one a zombie kidnaps her and takes her to the mausoleum, where apparently that's where the zombies are hanging out now. I <laughs> didn't catch why. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't, yeah. But you know, it's it's a graveyard. It's spooky. Um, oh, talk about spooky! That mausoleum. It seems kind of boring when you first go in there. There's nothing on the walls. It's just a handful right. of you know caskets set up. But when the zombies all start to rise. Yeah. It's it's almost as if they're doing it all in sync, and it is creepy. It is creepy. There's some creepy stuff like that with the zombies, that particular scene, and then when they start coming up out of the water later on, mm-hmm. and they're just marching up out of the water, that's a creepy scene, too. Yeah. Oh, man. There's a lot of underwater zombies in this. Yes, uh, and, and actually underwater. I'm sure some of the scenes were not underwater. We just kind of simulated. But you do see some scenes where there's a guy in a diving suit who's got air coming out of the top of his, his helmet. So you know he's really there. It appears that he is or else they did some really nice animation, animated in some bubbles afterwards or something. Exactly. That And that's one of the things that actually caught me the first time I watched this is the underwater scenes I thought were very well done handled Mm -hmm. and the zombies walking around underwater is super creepy very much so yeah yeah we've talked all the way through most of the plot yeah we get to that those scenes where they're finally diving for the diamonds and the zombies jeff goes down he finds out where they are where the safe is the zombies attack him and almost kill him Mm -hmm. they get him up and shoot the zombies off of him or knock them off anyways and get him back to the house 
Then there's some drama between Jan and Mona. Jeff, of course, recovers. Oh, because, yeah. Because, you know, he's the heartthrob. He's got to recover. He's the lead. lead. Sure. Which would it would have been cool if he'd have died. That would have really thrown the movie. <laughs> it would have been here. like, yeah. Well, I mean, it would have been a cool twist. You wouldn't have gotten That's that. That's true. That's true. At this time. That's but, true. But, you know, yeah. I could see if you wanted to remake that today, you want to throw a big twist in there, kill off your main character, your, your lead actor guy. Then what are you going to do? <laughs> Jan, Jan's left with like, well, gee, I was falling in love with him. Now he's dead. You had to throw him in one of those empty graves out there now. <laughs> right. Things start to come to a head, though. They finally listen to Grandma when Grandma's been saying, fire, fire's the only thing that keeps them away. And she's, you know, got a house full of candles. Mm-hmm. And she, she's got torches in the house, apparently, too, because she comes in at one time when one of them's in the be- bedroom and chases him out with a torch. Um <laughs> She's prepared for them, you know. She's got her prepper stuff going on. Um, <laughs> but they go back to the ship. They go down and they take torches with them this time because you know they got to cut the safe open. Apparently, right? And they get the diamonds. They do. You know, and all of the zombies in creation follow them, which I thought was a very well handled scene um, with the zombies. You know, coming over the side of the ship and stalking them around. Mm-hmm. There were some creepy moments in that one, too. So, first of all, to go back to the torches and all that, another great precursor to Night of the Living Dead. Yep. You know, when they're yep. waving the oh, torches yeah. around, I couldn't help but think about Ben swinging the torch, yes. uh, you know, to make the zombies go away. And and I'm, I'm, I'm saying it was intentional or Romero right. saw that and thought, hey, let's do that. I just thought it was a neat little precursor. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, so that was kind of neat. But yeah, the siege of the zombies on the boat. So you have the zombies attacking when they're underwater. You have the zombies coming up with them when they're pulled back up. You got the zombies coming on board. You've got people freaking out, jumping off the side of the boat, and you know they're dead. You know, as soon as they do that, you yeah, know they're yeah. doomed. You got people holding up in a cabin on the ship to try to stay away from everything. You got people. It's a siege movie at that point. And it's, again, right. Night of the Living Dead. You know, it's a siege movie. Yep, You've got yep. the zombies banging on the door outside trying to get in. And it is terrifying and and intense and wow i loved it yeah intense is a good word for it the torches have all gone out there's you know four of them or five of them left trapped in the cabin the captain guys got injured when he was by the zombies when he was underwater and he can't half walk now right and morse ankrum's character dr eggert's not helping any at all really and jeff's like i'm gonna take the diamonds and jump in the boat, the little boat, and go to shore. And the zombies will all follow me because they want the diamonds. <laughs> and the captain guy's like, uh-uh, you're not stealing the diamonds. You know, and they get in a little fight. Jeff decks him and runs out. Yeah. Jumps in the boat, and the zombies do following. And everybody else was like, no, we're not going to let him steal the diamonds. So they jump in the other boat and follow everybody in. <laughs> One thing that, that happened or before all of this is, you know, you mentioned – you know, Mona gets slapped around and then she leaves. Well, you know what's going to happen to Mona when she leaves the compound. Mm-hmm. And suddenly this captain guy who's been slapping her around and didn't care that she was flirting with Jeff and all this kind of stuff suddenly cares for her greatly and goes and risks his life to rescue her from the zombies in the mausoleum. Right. And they go in and she's laying on the ground and he's like, oh no, she's dead. 
and then the zombies start to rise and Mona sits up too. Well, she is a zombie. And sure. and and she looks the part too. The look of the zombies. It's not yeah. overly graphic. You know, they, they look like you'd expect a 1950s zombie to look like, which is basically what they look like going all the way back to white zombie. Wide-eyed, blank face, pale skin, right. darkened skin underneath the eyes, uh, that sort of thing. Um, maybe drape some of them in seaweed, make their clothing look old. Maybe they could have done a little bit more with them and made them a little more spooky, you know, sunk in their cheeks a little or something like that. But then again, they've been underwater for a long time, so they're, maybe they're not going to be very gaunt. Mm. You know, it doesn't take away from the movie. It's just one of those things where you kind of wish, well, maybe you, you might have put a little bit. The budget may be showing through a little bit or something like that. I could see that. Sure. Overall, the movie, it moves well. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the acting is good to quite good. If you're talking about Marjorie Eaton's character oh, and, Allison, and, Al- and Allison Hayes. Yeah. They both bring it and do a very good job. Allison Hayes is just great in that kind of character. Mm-hmm. 1950s bad girl. 1950s bad girl. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. perfect. She does a good job with that. And you'll see it later in, in 50 Foot Woman. She brings that same kind of vibe. And, you know, Greg Palmer's adequate as the hero guy. Sure. Although he's he's not really a hero. I mean, through the whole movie, this guy just wants to get the money and go. And yeah, he's going to take Jan with him, but it isn't until the end until he kind of has a change of heart and becomes a good guy. That's one thing about the movie. At least the people in the expedition are not very nice people. Yeah. You know, they're, they're greedy, kind of mean to each other. They're, they're fighting the whole movie all the way through for the most part. I mean, the only Dr. Eggert's not. He's just kind of there for the ride. And, and you get the feeling every once in a while, he's kind of regretting having thrown in with them. Well, there's one point in the middle of the film where he does say, I'm done. I'm not yeah. going to do this. And then he's like, well, what if I change your percentage? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know, 50% sounds good. And then he's, he's back in. He's back in. Yeah. So. Yeah. Jan had almost talked him out of it and the and the zombie thing is kind of like I don't know if I'm going to deal with these zombies for 25%. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a fun movie and I hadn't really seen that until you brought them out. A lot of foreshadowing to Neither Living Dead, not that again, not that Romero watched this and took it, but it now us looking backwards we can appreciate those little touches. Right. In a different light, yeah. You know, Romero may have seen it. And, and even if he did, so what? I mean, he was... Exactly. You know, all artists kind of take inspiration from everything they're exposed to, whether they mean to or not. So we're not implying or saying anything there. Just if he saw it, great. If he didn't see it, well, we get to see it now. You know, we get to see right. the connections. And I think there's a lot of things happening in this movie that serve as a precursor to what would become that second stage of zombie cinema evolution with right. being afraid of fire and, and that sort of thing. And, and even just the way they rise from the grave, you see that mm-hmm. you see zombies underwater, which we would see done later in other oh, incredible movies. I was going to mention shockwaves. Yep. There you go. One of the greatest zombie movies ever created. There you go. Oh God, I love shockwaves so much. Right. Yep. So, so. yes, yeah, so if you ever want to talk about shockwaves, you know, give me a ring. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're talking here. Here's I'm going to I'm going to throw this out to you and see what you think about this. So we're talking about 
this movie being an inspiration, intentional or not, to other movies. So what's this movie about? This movie has a central idea that there are sailors who have been turned into zombies by a curse after stealing treasure from a temple. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> we going to make another Disney connection here? Absolutely. I can see a lot of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's, yeah. yeah. No, and it gets even better. You also have a wife who is pining for her husband who has been turned into an undead and wishing for a way for him to end his torment. That carries into the later Pirates movies after Black Pearl, doesn't it? With uh, Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley. <laughs> oh, wow. And then you get all the underwater zombie scenes. Mm-hmm. Also, because that scene of Curse of the Black Pearl when the pirates come walking out to the ship under the water is just fantastic. Oh, it is. It's so and good. I'm, yeah, and I'm like, you know what? They watched this movie. The Pirates of the Caribbean is Zombies of Mortal with multi-million dollar budget <laughs> and better actors. <laughs> so yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm gonna live there. Okay, I All think right. that's I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that connection. Internet, have at it. That's amazing. Yeah, I I could see that. I really could, and it's wow. There you go. Now you got to go watch Black Pearl again. <laughs> As if my to watch pile isn't I try to... <laughs> six feet four inches tall. <laughs> I try to restart it or reset it like in January, but it's already. Out of control. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I've got way too many on my list also. Because, you know, I listened to Monster Kid Radio and I was like, oh, well, now i got to go watch that movie now. <laughs> luckily, luckily, Monster Kid Movie Club is taking care of a lot of, a lot of that. Ha, you know, you're going to get four watches of cool stuff on yep. Saturdays and two more on Tuesdays. Yep. We kind of come around. We probably finished up. The big parts of Zombies of Mortal and the fact that it's the precursor to the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. That's amazing, though, and I could totally see it. You know, listeners, Tom said that he watched it three times over the weekend, and I, I think this movie could hold up to repeated viewings. Almost like, I, I don't know if I could sit down and do that. Again, I mentioned the to watch pile, but, uh, th you know, having this movie in your collection, I think... If you haven't watched it, dig it out. If you haven't yeah. watched it recently, dig it out. Watch it. There's some really neat stuff in it. Uh, it's It's got some really effective, creepy moments. Uh, Allison Hayes is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Marjorie really Eamon is amazing. Uh, so there's some really interesting uh, cinematography going on here with yeah. the zombies and how they're portrayed. Everything in that mausoleum. I mean, that's cool. There's some good uh, day for night photography. Uh-huh. Uh, in it also, uh, um, most of the action takes place at night, quote unquote. The film's a little on the dark side, not not theme wise necessarily, but visually, it's a little on the dark side in in places. But the day for night photography, I thought, was pretty outstanding. The effects in the movie are good, particularly for fifty seven oh, and yeah. for a low budget movie. Yeah, uh, this is a nice surprise to have an opportunity to go back and watch it. You know, I, I've said this before about feeling a little burnt on zombie movies, even though it's been over seven or eight years now since I've done Mail Order Zombie and the Zombie Podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's nice to kind of remind myself that there are some really good ones out there like this one. Yep. 
Yep, I would put this in that category of the pre pre Night of the Living Dead zombies. This is this is a good one. Don't know how else to to end other than just yeah, I agree. It's a good one. So and go Tom, watch it. You're one of the good ones too, man. Well, there's two of us here then. <laughs> well, you know. You are. <laughs> and everybody knows it, so stop denying it. All right. You know. <laughs> I know, I know. You're you're a humble guy, and we appreciate that. Uh, so if you need more Tom in your life, GoForthAndGame.com is – is that pretty much the main place to go for everything these days? GoForthAndGame.com and – Occasionally on another site, Adventures in Game Schooling, my friend Ryan and I run that as homeschool dads where we talk about using games in school cool. to teach. Yeah. Right on. So now we just need to figure out how to use the Monster Kid Radio game as an educational tool because I bet there's some like some grants for that out there, right? I hadn't thought about it, but there might be. <laughs> I don't I know. I got to get the game first. I don't know. <laughs> Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, Frankenstein, unleashed to conquer all, defying the force of armies, the might of navies, and the fury of jets, Frankenstein conquers the world. See Frankenstein Conquers the World, starring Nick Adams and Frankenstein, a 100-foot monster bigger than the giant screen, in color scope from American International Pictures. Deep, deeper, deepest, from beneath the living, from beyond the dead, to the depths of hell's ocean. Shockwaves, something unspeakable has risen. Shockwaves, from Joseph Brenner, rated PG. Starring the masters of shock, Peter Cushing and John Carradine, plunging you deep, deeper, deepest, into shockwaves. The deep end of horror. That's the end of the show. We're done. We've reached the end of this particular episode. But before I let you go, I'd like to remind you that you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. From here, you'll find links to our Facebook page, our Twitter page, our Facebook group. You'll find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, a link to the band whose music we're playing this week. You'll find links to our Patreon page. You'll find what movie we're talking about next week because I'm going to post it over there, but I'm going to tell you right now, we're talking about the movie 13 ghosts with author Nicole Cushing. No relation. Nicole has been on the show before. And actually I just recorded this conversation with her uh, yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday. So it's hot fresh off the digital audio press or whatever. Yeah, it was a fun time to reconnect with Nicole. It's been a while. And to talk about a William Castle film. So make sure you come back next week for that. Of course, if all goes well, we'll have Kenny and Mark. And who knows what else. You'll just have to come back next week to find out if we add anything else new to the mix. Or just, you know, just come back. Just come back. Just come back. Before then, though. Saturday, the Monster Kid Movie Club. We are doing nothing but movies in which the monsters face the military. It's monsters versus the military at the Monster Kid Movie Club starting at 11 a.m. Pacific on our Twitch channel. So look up Monster Kid Radio on Twitch or, like I said, monsterkidmovie.club. 
The pre-show's at 11. The movies start at noon. We're going to be showing movies like Varan the Unbelievable, Zontar, The Thing from Venus, Creature from the Haunted Sea, and a couple of other flicks. You're just going to have to come by and check it out. It's a good time. The movies are free. There's a live chat. I pop in. We play the classic five with everybody. It's just a good time. It's a blast. On Tuesday, we're doing some science fiction movies because it's the Monster Kid Astronomy Club. That's Tuesday the 23rd, and we're going to be showing the movies... Planet of the Female Invaders, and Planets Around Us. The first one is a Mexican science fiction movie. The second one is an Italian science fiction movie. The bottom line is, though, is that there are a couple of free movies that you're going to get to watch with us and the crowd in the MonsterKidMovie.club chat. We'll also have an episode of the BBC TV show The Invisible Man, and at the end of the night, we talk about Star Trek with Jeff Pollier. That starts at 3.30 p.m. Pacific for the pre-show. Four o'clock is when the movies start. Again, please come by and check it out. And if you can't make it, that's fine. Just make sure you come back here next Thursday for the 13 Ghosts with Nicole Cushing. Until then, remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license, except for the song Unhappy End. That is copyright 2020, Los Cosmos. And again, you can find them at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. Check out their single Unhappy End. Buy it for yourself for a buck and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.